Yes, of course. If it's fine tomorrow, said Mrs. Ramsay. But you'll have to be up with the lark, she added. To her son, these words conveyed an extraordinary joy. As if it were settled, the expedition were bound to take place. And the wonder to which he had looked forward for years and years, it seemed, was, after a night's darkness and a day's sail, within touch. Since he belonged, even at the age of six, to that great clan which cannot keep this feeling separate from that, but must let future prospects with their joys and sorrows cloud what is actually at hand. Since to such people, even in earliest childhood, any turn in the wheel of sensation has the power to crystallize and transfix the moment upon which its gloom or radiance rests. James Ramsay, sitting on the floor cutting out pictures from the illustrated catalogue of the Army and Navy stores, endowed the picture of a refrigerator as his mother spoke with heavenly bliss. It was fringed with joy. Hello, I'm Alicia Brogy. And I'm Erica Lombard. We're literary scholars. And this is Literate, the podcast where we go through the New York Public Library's 1995 list of the books of the century. Each episode, we read one of these books, talk about what it means and why it matters, and then try to work out whether it really is one of the books of the 20th century. This time, I'm super excited to say that we are reading Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse. We also talked to two experts on Woolf, Irmila Sishigiri and Hermione Lee. At the start of the episode, we heard Ruth Wilson reading from the start of To the Lighthouse. The clip comes courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. Alicia, this is our sixth episode and the final episode of our first season. We made it! Yes, and what a pleasure it's been to record these sessions with you, but also to receive feedback from listeners along the way. Yeah, it's been really, really awesome to get people's perspectives and to have so many listeners get in touch saying that they are keen to read more and get into the books we've been talking about. So we've decided to come back for a second season. Yay! <laughs> we're very excited. We are. So we're going to take a short break, a summer break for me and a winter one for you, Alicia. Yes. And we'll be back early next year in January with some more brilliant books. Okay, back to Wolf. I'm going to start off with a brief introduction to Virginia Woolf and to The Lighthouse. And I'll tell you a bit about the book. Then we'll hear from the experts and have a conversation about it. Erica, tell me about Wolf. Virginia Woolf was born Adeline Virginia Stephen on the 25th of January, 1882, in London. Her parents were Leslie Stephen, the founder of the Dictionary of National Biography, who was later knighted for his services to literature, and one-time pre-Raphaelite model Julia Jackson Duckworth. This was the second marriage for both, who had each been widowed. Together they had four children, Vanessa, Toby, Virginia, and Adrian, who joined Leslie's one and Julia's three older children from their first marriages. The Stephen household was intellectually curious and free-thinking, 
but eminently Victorian and patriarchal in its values. Only the boys were educated formally, an injustice that would fuel Virginia's feminism. That said, Virginia and her sisters had the free run of their father's library. Tragedy seemed to follow the Stevens, however. Julia, Wolfe's mother, died in 1895, when Virginia was just 13. Virginia's half-sister, Stella Duckworth, died just two years later. Her father in 1904, and then her brother Toby in 1906. Until Julia's death, the family spent summers at Talland House in St. Ives in Cornwall. Another place that would become very important to Virginia was the Bloomsbury area of London, where she and her siblings moved in 1904 after their parents had both died, and where they would come to be the centre of the so-called Bloomsbury Group, that loose but incredibly influential collective of writers, artists and thinkers that included John Maynard Keynes and E.M. Forster. Virginia married Leonard Wolfe in 1912. Their marriage, which lasted until her death, appears to have been a good one, intellectually engaged and productive. They established their own publishing house, Hogarth Press, in 1917, and the relationship had space in it for close and passionate friendships with others that sometimes moved into erotic territory. Probably the most famous one of these is her relationship with Vita Sackville-West, on whom she based the title gender-shifting character of Orlando. Wolfe's first novel, The Voyage Out, was published in 1915. In addition to her novels, she wrote essays and works of criticism, biographies, letters and diaries. Wolfe struggled with her mental health for much of her life, going through several bouts of deep depression and also apparently experiencing manic episodes. She was institutionalized several times. On the 28th of March, 1941, sensing the onset of another depressive period and wishing to spare Leonard the burden of caring for her, Wolf loaded her pockets with stones and waded out into the River Ouse in Sussex, drowning herself. To the Lighthouse was Wolf's fifth novel and is regarded as her most autobiographical. I found this fact on the British Library's page on the novel that in a diary entry of the 28th of November 1928, she wrote, this is a quote, I used to think of father and mother daily, but writing The Lighthouse laid them in my mind. Writing of them was a necessary act. So sort of implying that she got some kind of closure through writing the book. The novel was first published by Hogarth Press in 1927, on the 32nd anniversary of Virginia's mother's death, and it featured a cover designed by Virginia's artist sister, Vanessa Bell. The book won the Prix Femina Vie Heureuse in 1928. It sold better than any of Wolfe's novels to that date, and they used the proceeds to buy a car. <laughs> Since then, To the Lighthouse has been listed as one of the 100 best English language novels of the 20th century by the Modern Library and by Time Magazine, and of course by the New York Public Library. But Erica, what did Virginia Woolf think of cats? Hmm, well, I have it on good authority that the Wolfs lived up to their name. That is, they were dog people. (laughs) (laughs) Virginia once observed that, quote, a dog somehow represents the private side of life, the play side. 
She had several beloved dogs over the course of her life. And interestingly, she apparently trained them to put out the matches she used to light her cigarettes. Not sure how. One of the wolf's most adored canine companions was a black cocker spaniel called Pinker, who was a gift from Vita Sackville West. Virginia also famously wrote Flush, a biography of Elizabeth Barrett Browning's dog of the same name, told from his perspective. Now, Alicia, what is To the Lighthouse about? To the Lighthouse takes place on the Isle of Skye, an island off of the northwest coast of Scotland. It's set at the summer home of the Ramsay family. Mr. and Mrs. Ramsay are there, at the start, with their eight children and various guests. The story begins with Mrs. Ramsay reassuring the youngest child, James, that yes, they might sail to the lighthouse the next day. Only for Mr. Ramsay, the father, to intervene saying that will not be possible because the weather will be poor, thereby crushing his young son's hopes. By the end of the book, ten years later, James does make a journey to the lighthouse. And what makes that voyage so interesting is everything in between. This is a novel, though, where it's useful to pause and consider the structure in detail. The story has three main parts, and Virginia Woolf diagrammed them as, in her words, two blocks joined by a corridor. So think of the shape of a dumbbell. The first and last blocks take up the greatest number of pages by far, but each of them covers less than a full day. By contrast, the short middle section, that corridor connecting them, as Wolf put it, spans 10 years. So the number of pages and words in the book do not at all correspond with a steady chronology. What makes the first and last parts of this book so long is a detailed attention to human interaction during family visits to the summer home. By contrast, the middle part of the story, which is called Time Passes, tells of the summer home's existence during the years between the Ramsey's visits. This is a 10-year period in which World War I is waged, a huge event in human history. But the focus of this segment of the story is on everything going a little feral at the summer home. In fact, we only hear of the deaths of three members of the Ramsey family parenthetically, including the death of Mrs. Ramsey, who's a central character. The story unfolds with a rhythm akin to waves as perspectives on the Ramsey family become more proximate one moment, more distant the next. During the third and final section of the story, several family members have returned to the holiday home with Lily Briscoe, a painter, who was one of their guests at the start. Lily comes into the foreground, bringing the theme of perspective into particular focus as she works to complete a painting that she had started 10 years prior at the beginning of the story. Across these three parts, meanings arise and reverberate through the smallest details, glancing off of the imagery and setting, characters' thoughts and dialogue. It's the reading version of an Impressionist painting, perhaps, or a post-Impressionist one. Key themes that arise are of relations between parents and children, men and women, friends. There are themes of time and memory, perception and art, as well as a larger, more pervasive theme of the question of life itself what it is in all its fluidity. Mm -hmm. 
Now we're going to hear an extended reflection from Irmala Seshagiri. She's an associate professor of English at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. She's published widely on modernism and Woolf and is preparing the first scholarly edition of Virginia Woolf's memoir, A Sketch of the Past. And we can't wait for you to hear her fantastically illuminating and compelling response. Mr. Ramsey, stumbling along a passage one dark morning, stretched his arms out. But Mrs. Ramsey, having died rather suddenly the night before, the arms, though stretched out, remained empty. This single sentence, a toneless announcement enclosed in square brackets, shatters the exquisitely rendered world of To the Lighthouse. It holds more power than any other sentence I can think of in 20th century English fiction. The sentence is inexplicable. It betrays readerly trust. It violates our sense of what should happen in a story. Time has not softened its brutality. Nearly a century after the publication of To the Lighthouse, readers confronted with Mrs. Ramsey's death are still shocked into momentary blank disbelief. And what Wolfe achieves in the novel is an extraordinary balance between the knife point of that sentence and a boundlessly detailed portrait of a late Victorian-era English family, the Great War, and the birth of the modern artist. Why does To the Lighthouse rank among the New York Public Library's books of the century? Why does it carve out a path for writers from Toni Morrison and Arundhati Roy to Ian McEwan and Elena Ferrante? Because Wolf remakes the form of the novel, multiplying centers of narrative consciousness to create a story that is at once particular and universal, radically destabilizing and yet profoundly reassuring. Because it shows us, as James Ramsey realizes when he finally completes his trip to the lighthouse, that nothing was simply one thing. And because it begins and ends with the word, yes. In her unfinished memoir, Sketch of the Past, Wolf recalls how To the Lighthouse came into being. She writes, one day walking around Tavistock Square, I made up, as I sometimes make up my books, To the Lighthouse in a great, apparently involuntary rush. One thing burst into another. Blowing bubbles out of a pipe gives the feeling of the rapid crowd of ideas and scenes which blew out of my mind so that my lips seemed as syllabling of their own accord as I walked. Bubbles are a lovely and perfect metaphor for Wolf's techniques into the lighthouse, a book filled with shapes, a painted purple triangle that represents mother and child, the silhouette of a pig's skull, words making a pattern on the floor of a child's mind, a square cut from the side of a living fish, plates making white circles on the dinner table. Bubbles capture too the book's preoccupation with fragility and ephemerality, Thought and emotion shift and change. Children become adults. The present becomes the past. In telling the story of the Ramsey family and the painter Lily Briscoe, To the Lighthouse illuminates the complexities of the self in time, demonstrating how human activity unfolds within the incomprehensible scale of natural and cosmic temporalities. The novel's opening and its lengthiest section, which paradoxically takes place over a single day, begins with six-year-old James Ramsey cutting out the picture of a refrigerator from the Army and Navy store's catalog. Wolf elevates the seemingly unremarkable act into evidence that 
quote, any turn in the wheel of sensation has the power to crystallize and transfix the moment upon which its gloom or radiance rests. And even as Wolf infuses significance into the smallest events of one day, she widens the novel's angle of vision to demand, but what, after all, is one night? And I'm going to read briefly from the Time Passes middle section. But what, after all, is one night? A short space, especially when the darkness dims so soon and so soon a bird sings, a cock crows, or a faint green quickens like a turning leaf in the hollow of a wave. Night, however, succeeds to night. The winter holds a pack of them in store and deals them equally, evenly, with indefatigable fingers. They lengthen, they darken. Some of them hold aloft clear planets, plates of brightness. The autumn trees, ravaged as they are, take on the flash of tattered flags, kindling the loom of cool cathedral caves, where gold letters on marble pages describe death in battle and how bones bleach and burn far away in Indian sands. Passages such as this impressed the author herself, as Wolf wrote in her diary a few weeks before the novel's publication, dear me, how lovely some parts of Lighthouse are, soft and pliable, and I think deep, and never a word wrong for a page at a time. Published in 1927, To the Lighthouse is not as ebullient as its predecessor, Mrs. Dalloway, nor as poetically abstract as one of its successors, The Waves. But it is the novel, whose revelations and innovations offer lesson after lesson to me as a scholar, a teacher, and a feminist, as a wife, mother, daughter, and sister, and as a reader and writer. I have lived to the lighthouse for more than a quarter of a century, enthralled by Wolf's prose as I encounter it with students reading the novel for the first time or with scholars discussing it for the hundredth. Its questions are the questions that surface and recur at unexpected junctures. Mrs. Ramsey's bold query, but what have I done with my life? Mr. Ramsey's anxiety about the limits of knowledge, the Ramsey children's rage against the fierce, sudden black-winged harpy of patriarchal cultures that breed tyranny and despotism. Amidst the coronavirus pandemic of 2020, to the lighthouse is more relevant than ever. We too, like Wolf's characters, are shocked by the deaths of loved ones, and uncertain about making our way through a world we once thought we knew. But Wolf leaves us with the promise of triumph over adversity. The novel affirms life itself as the one dependable thing in a world of strife, ruin, chaos, and concludes when Lily Briscoe overcomes the artistic self-doubt that has haunted her throughout the novel. With a sudden intensity, as if she saw it clear for a second, she drew a line there in the center. It was done. It was finished. Yes, she thought, laying down her brush in extreme fatigue. I have had my vision. What did you think about To the Lighthouse? I love this novel, Alicia. Mm. I really, really love this novel. And I don't think I can speak 
dispassionately about it. I've read it before, but reading it this time was a different experience for me. And maybe again, as I keep saying across these episodes, it's about life stage. So my father died last year and I've spent a lot of time thinking through my relationship with him and thinking through my relationship with my family members and all of that. So if this was Virginia Woolf's own autobiographical reckoning with her family history and her parents. It's not just that, of course, it's more than that, because as she herself says, no thing is only ever just one thing. I think it was interesting coming back to it for me personally, for my own autobiography, thinking about family relationships and parents and all of that. Uh, But something that has stayed with me over my years of reading Virginia Woolf is how accurately, to my experience, she manages to capture the way thought works, the way we think to ourselves and how we kind of narrate in our heads. The stream of consciousness narrative technique where we're going between an omniscient narrator, maybe, and Lily Briscoe's perspective and then Mr. Ramsey and then Mrs. Ramsey and we inhabit these different people's thoughts and the different ways that they think with the sense that there is another person, a narrator, maybe Wolf herself even, who is helping us mediate between these different perspectives. There's something about that that reading the novel itself feels like you are playing a symphony and this is the score and you're you're bringing your own experience to it and your own kind of inflections and your own meanings, but you are following the thoughts of these other characters as they flit from one thing to another, you know? Mm. What's what's your sense? Well, part of the way that the novel is structured is that it has these subsections within the larger parts, and they often begin with a pronoun without a reference, so he without his name, or words without quotation marks. So the narrative Mm. voice shifts from one perspective to another, and you don't always know what perspective you're in. And that's absolutely crucial to the reading experience, and I think crucial to the subject of the novel. It, it is, in a way, about all these different eyes, these individuals um, and perspectives. You mean, you mean... I mean, I, I as the pronoun and as the homonym. And I think it's about each individual and about the whole that all these perspectives shed light on and contribute to about life. It's also interesting that Virginia Woolf began writing this in 1925, and that's the same year she published an expanded version of the essay Modern Novels, now as Modern Fiction. And in that essay, she's critical of some fictional forebears, which she describes as the Edwardian novelists like H.G. Wells, Arnold Bennett, and John Galsworthy. But she's also critical of James Joyce. A little bit. And so she she criticizes the Edwardians as being materialists. They're focused too much on things that aren't necessarily getting at that essence of life or the psychology or what you're talking about here, this consciousness, Mm, these mm. things that charge all those moments. But then her critique, and this this was brought to my attention by Deborah Parsons' book, Theorists of the Modernist Novel, James Joyce, Dorothy Richardson, Virginia Woolf, which is great, and I recommend it, partly because it gives really clear definitions of complex ideas. But Parsons claims that Woolf is also critiquing Joyce for 
having a method that, in Parsons' word, is, quote, so concentrated on one individual mind that it refuses to acknowledge the interaction of consciousness with the world around it. And that's the end of the quote. And what's so wonderful about what you've said, and I think about what Wolf does into the lighthouse, is it does have all these different perspectives, and you get carried through the rhythm of the perspectives. But then the center part is a perspective that is so strange who is narrating this center bit about time passing? And yes. so it's not just the perspectives of individuals, yeah. but of the context, of a context, of a world that's bigger than each eye. So I agree. And I think that Wolf is very self-reflective about this and that the artistry of it is part of what makes the novel so great. The artistry that facilitates the experience you're describing as a reader, mm. uh, which draws on her own autobiography and taps into yours, that taps into feeling and thought. I think there's something to me, the experience of reading Wolf, each time I read something by her, and especially this novel, I'm struck by how she says things about the way people are in the world and interact in their minds that I don't see in other novels. Mm. So one of the things that I have remembered across the years is Lily Briscoe sitting at the dining table, thinking about all the people around her and thinking about this painting that she's been working on. And she's trying to work out how can I solve this problem? Where should the light go? Where should the dark go? Where should, how do I balance this picture, this portrait? And this is a quotation. She says, in a flash, she saw her picture and thought, yes, I shall put the tree further in the middle. Then I shall avoid that awkward space. That's what I shall do. That's what has been puzzling me. She took up the salt cellar and put it down again <laughs> on a flower in the pattern in the tablecloth so as to remind herself to move the tree. That, that moment of her taking the salt cellar and putting it on a particular point of the pattern in the tablecloth to remind herself, the way that the mind uses these kinds of external, dare I say it, embodied <laughs> details to make notes and to make sense, that, that level of observation of Wolf is always just so exciting to me and I feel so validated. Absolutely. And that reminds me of two things. One is super brief, which is just that the exact quote that you're, or the exact moment you're bringing up, Lily then refers to later in the text. And she describes it as the moment when she gained freedom from Mrs. Ramsey's domineering force that pushes young women and men to marry. And, <laughs> yeah. and so this moment that has that physical aspect and it has this aspect where she's thinking about perception and a painting. And at the time, we don't hear, to my memory, anything about her struggling with a, a perceived pressure from Mrs. Ramsey to marry. But later, that association is added to it, which is such a rich mm. way of featuring memory and perception and embodiment. But also, I thought of you so much with one little section, which is completely yeah. on this subject of embodiment, which you have been wonderful at bringing up repeatedly in our conversations. It's later in the book. It's in the third part. And Lily is thinking back, well, she's thinking about emotions. And she says, for how could one express in words these emotions of the body? Express that emptiness there. It was one's body feeling, not one's mind. And then this is what I love the most. This little subsection goes on. And at the end, the tears run down her face. And the whole, the whole rumination is about her memory of Mrs. Ramsey. And she's kind of trying to conjure up emotions. And then it ends mm, with this mm. physical expression of emotion. And then it gets even better. The next subsection 
because the subsections have been going back and forth between Lily and the boat as it goes to the lighthouse. It's the third section. They're finally getting to the lighthouse. And the next subsection, at first, when I read it, it completely baffled me. But when I went back with this question in mind that you're raising about the embodied nature of feeling and thought, mm -hmm. the next subsection in full reads like this, square brackets. McAllister's boy took one of the fish and cut a square out of its side to bait his hook with. The mutilated body, parentheses, it was alive still, and parentheses, was thrown into the sea, and square brackets. That's the full subsection. It is completely embodied. Mm. It helped me to see what you're emphasizing, that way in which Wolf situates consciousness and feelings in this really sophisticated, deeply embodied manner. So I thought you'd like that. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. I love what you said about emotions being in the body. I mean, that is so... It's absolutely in keeping with what we know about how our minds work, how our brains work, how emotions work, how trauma works too, mm -hmm. actually. Yeah, I love that. There's a kind of a realism to this novel. We've come back to this question of realism over the episodes. But there's a kind of a realism here that is not about externalities. It's to my experience, at least. And I don't know how other people think and engage in the world. but. It rings true. That was really at the heart of Wolf's argument in modern fiction. She was saying that the novel is about, it's supposed to be about life, but the old forms are impeding our capacity to represent it, to tell some true things about this quivering thing, as I think someone calls it in this novel, life mm. itself. And, and Deborah Parsons is arguing that the modernists were devising a new kind of realism yeah. to try to capture more of what this thing is. You know, is life like that? Was this driving question. And they were learning more about, I mean, this is the heyday of, of Freud and psychoanalysis. So they're learning more about how the unconscious is working and how the mind works and how much narrative is a part of that. Yes. Like the stories we tell about ourselves are what we are. That's what identity is in many ways. Yeah. And although Wolf hadn't met Freud yet, which she would eventually do, he was a common topic of discussion, I gather, from my readings in the Bloomsbury group. Mm. And, and after he died, she would go on and read his works with interest. So, and there, there's a large strand of psychoanalytic critique on this book. But before we jump into that, and perhaps a good segue from Freud, Erica, you brought up fathers. Would you like to say more about fathers? I was about to say, Alicia, <laughs> I was going to say, well, speaking of Freud, <laughs> but it's also speaking of the previous generation, what you're saying about critiquing and really trying to make something new in reaction to the father's generation. This is why Wolf is so brilliant, because she knows the literary past so well. Yes, she's steeped in it, right? She's steeped in it. And so she's able to be truly original because of that. I mean, that is yeah. at the heart of what she accomplishes. And that's the thing. She goes back again and again to her own very Victorian upbringing. Mm. And she's using that as the material to make something new. So while she's reacting against it, she's also using it. And I, I guess I could draw some sort of, uh, I don't know, almost sentimental conclusion about isn't that what growing up is, <laughs> is to return to your childhood and to your upbringing and not reject it entirely, but see its failings and its shortcomings, find compassion for it, and use it as the stuff to make your life, the life that you want to live. Yes. And so that the ghosts of the past don't dictate your future as well. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, there is, there's a lot about 
fathers and about engaging with your parents, because it's not just about fathers, it's also about mothers. Mm. And there were just some moments where I felt like Wolf's engagement with patriarchy was so spot on. Some of the points that she makes about the ways in which in a patriarchal society, men and women who embrace those roles, play them, were just so accurate to me. Some of the things that really stood out to me was during the conversations at the dinner table, and Lily Briscoe is observing Charles Tansley, who's this young wannabe philosopher who says that women can't paint, women can't write, and this is really offensive to Lily, and she keeps coming back to his saying this horrible thing. Even 10 years later at the end of the book. <laughs> Absolutely, because it's like she's pitting herself against the world in which that person, you know, in, in which that voice is predominant. So Charles Tansley is listening to this conversation that he doesn't have anything to say in or nobody's giving him a chance to, but he's so desperate to prove himself. And he says he wanted somebody to give him a chance of asserting himself. Why did no one ask him his opinion? Lily Briscoe knew all that. <laughs> Sitting opposite him, could she not see, as in an X-ray photograph, the ribs and thigh bones of the young man's desire to impress himself lying dark in the midst of his flesh, etc.? And then she says, there is a code of behavior she knew, whose seventh article, it may be, says that on occasions of this sort, it behoves the woman, whatever her own occupation may be, to go to the help of the young man opposite, so that he may expose and relieve the thigh bones, the ribs of his vanity, of his urgent desire to assert himself. As indeed it is their duty, she reflected in her old maidenly fairness, to help us, suppose the tube were to burst into flames. There's this fine-grained sense of how these power dynamics work, how mm -hmm. a woman should be in relation to a man. And Lily keeps seeing Mrs. Ramsey do that endlessly, giving her husband sympathy or pity when he's demanding it and being quite childish. And he is then in turn tyrannical to his children and causes his, his young son James to want to stab him with a poker or a knife. And then James later, when he's older, on the trip to the lighthouse, talks about not him, but the thing that descended on him, without his knowing it perhaps, the fierce sudden black-winged harpy with its talons and its beak all cold and hard that struck and struck at you, the sort of hard, sharp thing that mm. wants to bite out bits of your flesh. You know, of course, there are Freudian uh, references here that we could think about. All this to say, I think that Wolf gets at something the way that within this kind of patriarchal system that is quite tyrannical, that doesn't have space for all these feelings that are complex and, and roiling across the sexes to be expressed, how that then comes out in, in these interesting conventional ways that are stifling to many people, but also kind of make them want to do violent things. It's also interesting to me how that intensity of emotion, Wolf describes it and I think takes it very seriously, like you are saying and, and highlighting right now. And she also includes comments like, such were the extremes of emotion that Mr. Ramsey excited in his children's breasts by his mere presence, or about Mrs. Ramsey at one point, 
She was now formidable to behold, and it was only in silence, looking up from their plates after she had spoken so severely about Charles Tensley, that her daughters Prue, Nancy, Rose, could sport with infidel ideas, which they had brewed for themselves of a life different from hers. Um, <laughs> and yes. So it seems like the book is able to hold together the way in which there is something serious to these emotions. And there's also... Mm an element to them that comes from the structure of relationship, parent to child, father to son, son to father. And that seems to be at play in this movement that you briefly touched on, where at the start, James wants to kill his father. And at the end, he wants to kill the thing that descends. It's slightly different from his father, it seems to me. And Cam, his sister, had initially joined with him in their compact to fight tyranny to the death. Yes. Yes. And then at the end, she too... I mean, even more so, and maybe this is playing into those gender dynamics, mm. has these feelings of sympathy for her father. So that seems to be part of the laying to rest or growing older, which doesn't mm. dismiss because they also have rage at their father. He does these terrible, crazy things. He says words of poetry that valorize himself. He demands sympathy from them all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But he's also, you know, lost his wife and is walking around with that sadness. And he also seems to see them... For themselves sometimes, too. Mm. He doesn't condescend to them. You know, she keeps saying that he's actually the optimistic one. Yes. And Mrs. Ramsey is the one who's the cynic, ultimately. She's afraid of life in some ways and wants it to stand still. Yeah. Also, I liked how you brought her into this discussion of patriarchy, of the sexes, her role where she, she is described as receiving flattery from the process of helping people. And mm. there, there's something that I think is actually attributed to Lily Briscoe, but there's something of this always presenting the light with its shadow, always presenting the thing with its sort of counterpart. So um, she may yes. be fulfilling this ideal in her view, but there's a darker, mm. there's a shadow as well. A light here required a shadow there. Yes. On that note, the narrator also says of Mrs. Ramsey, she had the whole of the other sex under her protection. For reasons she could not explain, for their chivalry and valor, for the fact that they negotiated treaties, ruled India, controlled finance. Finally, for an attitude towards herself, which no woman could fail to feel or to find agreeable. Something trustful, childlike, reverential, which an old woman could take from a young man without loss of dignity, and woe betide the girl, Pray heaven it was none of her daughters, who did not feel the worth of it and all that it implied to the marrow of her bones. So that's that thing that you're, you're saying. But, you know, the, the flip of it is that she sees herself as kind of bestowing upon them, these childlike men, this kind of grace. Mm. So she's seeing herself as being in a powerful position to some extent. It's complex. It's always complex. With Wolf. <laughs> yeah, of course. And then I also go back to this thing. What is Mrs. Ramsey to herself? There's this moment where she's sitting by herself. It says, she could be herself by herself. And that was what now she often felt the need of, to think. Well, not even to think, to be silent, mm. to be alone. All the being and the doing, expansive, glittering, vocal, evaporated. And one shrunk with a sense of solemnity to being oneself a wedge-shaped core of darkness, something invisible to others. And then it goes on. Beneath it is all dark, it is all spreading, it is unfathomably deep, but now and again we rise to the surface and that is what you see us by. Mm. 
the sense that what we see surfacing is what we think of as her, but there's so much going on beneath. And she Mm. sees herself as this wedge-shaped core of darkness. So there's the dark there, and she feels freedom in that because she can go on all kinds of adventures within herself. And that very much reminded me of this whole rhythmic theme of, of water and waves that you catch throughout the novel. Yes. I mean, even the way in which the sun glimmers on the water, but then beneath it, it's dark. And there's something shared and deep and continuous. And if Wolf can be described as writing with stream of consciousness, maybe it should be sea of consciousness. Streams are water too. Streams are water too, but I feel like in this instance, maybe streams feel a little more directed to me. And here you have the peaking of the waves at moments and these high points that she's talking about and and in the apparitions of what life is. But life Mm. is so much more than that. It's all the darkness underneath. And this sense of those peaking moments that then sink down into something more diffuse brings to my mind an episode that I'd like to dive into a little more deeply. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a little earlier than the bit you've just described. And in Mm -hmm. fact, she's kind of coming down still from the bit that I want to go back to, which is at the end of the dinner. And it fascinated me partly because it has this religious register throughout, which always catches Mm. my eye. But I think it's very intentional here. And it's doing something interesting that's related to those peaking moments of waves of consciousness. And here is how it starts. She, and it's talking about Mrs. Ramsey, looked at the window in which the candle flames burnt brighter now that the panes were black. And looking at that outside, the voices came to her very strangely, as if they were voices at a service in a cathedral, for she did not listen to the words. Now, in a Roman Catholic cathedral, you often see votive candles, prayers for individual lives, so this kind of flickering light in the darkness, those themes you just raised. The sudden bursts of laughter, the text goes on, and then one voice, Minta's, speaking alone, reminded her of men and boys crying out the Latin words of a service in some Roman Catholic cathedral. She waited. Her husband spoke. He was repeating something. And she knew it was poetry. So instead of the ecclesial liturgy, now it's poetry inserted. There's something aesthetic Mm -hmm. happening here. She knew it was poetry from the rhythm and the ring of exaltation and melancholy in his voice. Come out and climb the garden path, Liriana Lurli. The china rose is all abloom and buzzing with the yellow bee. The words, she was looking at the window, sounded as if they were floating like flowers on water out there cut off from them all, as if no one had said them, but they had come into existence of themselves. Ex nihilo! (laughs) (laughs) And then in my edition, there's a bit with quotation marks, which, Erica, does yours have quotation marks here? No, it's set aside. It's like a block quotation. Interesting. So in mine, it's an inconsistent use of quotation marks, which suggests a different speaker. It goes on, and all the lives we ever lived and all the lives to be are full of trees and changing leaves, and quotation marks. She did not know what they meant, but like music, the words seemed to be spoken out of her own voice, outside herself. And as it goes on, there's this sense that she detects of a collective feeling. The text says, Mm. with the same sort of relief and pleasure that she had, as if this were, at last, the natural thing to say, this were their own voice speaking. But the voice stopped. She looked round. She made herself get up. Augustus Carmichael had risen and holding the table napkin so that it looked like a long white robe, he stood chanting to see the kings go riding by over lawn and daisy lee with their palm leaves and cedar sheaves, Luriana, Lurie. And as she passed, he turned slightly toward her, repeating the last words, 
Luriana, Lurie, and bowed to her, genuflecting, if you will, as if he did her homage. Without knowing why, she felt that he liked her better than he had ever done before, and with a feeling of relief and gratitude, she returned his bow and passed the door, which he held open for her. So what I see here is Wolf crafting a passage out of this domestic scenery that really draws on the aesthetic power of Mrs. Ramsey. It shows what she, mm. at her high points, accomplishes, which is creating moments that solidify in people's memories. And she thinks about this. This is going to be, she later thinks about this as a moment that people will remember. And Lily remembers moments and attributes to Mrs. Ramsey that power of making moments stick. But what's interesting, too, is that there is a shadow to this light. If all of the sacred language sounds elevated, I think that it is also being used in an elevated way. It's used in a very traditional way, and it is being associated with poetry. But later, what Lily accomplishes in her painting, I think, goes a little further than this, breaking with tradition a little bit more and allowing for that living aspect of life in a way that, despite all of the beauty of this moment, it's kind of ossifying beauty doesn't allow for that movement, mm. which I think is so important to Wolf's view of life in this book or portrayal of life in this book. Yeah. Incidentally, when you were describing what Mrs. Ramsey does, it reminded me of Lily Briscoe when she's painting right at the end. Yes. When she says, what is the meaning of life? That was all. A simple question one that tended to close in on one with years. Hmm. The great revelation had never come. The great revelation perhaps never did come. Instead, there were little daily miracles, illuminations, matches struck unexpectedly in the dark. Here was one, this, that, and the other, herself and Charles Tansley and the breaking wave, Mrs. Ramsay bringing them all together, Mrs. Ramsay saying, life stands still here. Mm. Mrs. Ramsay making of the moment something permanent. As in another sphere, Lily herself tried to make of the moment something permanent. This was of the nature of a revelation. In the midst of chaos, there was shape. This external passing and flowing. She looked at the clouds going and the leaves shaking, was stuck into stability. Life stands still here, Mrs. Ramsay said. Mrs. Ramsay, Mrs. Ramsay, she repeated. She owed this revelation to her. So that's what you were alluding to, I think. Absolutely. In that moment, right? And the very ending of the book takes up this religious register again and puts it right onto Lily with that talk of revelation. And then mm. she's using her sympathetic imagination in some way that's connected to Mr. Ramsay and his two children making it to the lighthouse so that... She says, he has landed. She says this out loud. And then she says, it is finished. You know, these, these words of Christ. The text says, with a sudden intensity, as if she saw it clear for a second, she drew a line there in the center. It was done. It was finished. Yes, she thought, laying down her brush in extreme fatigue. I have had my vision. So going back to that idea of revelation, but in a little bit yes. less elevated register. Yeah. Oh, a little bit more of the everyday, maybe. The everyday. It, it, she's going between these surfaces and the depths the whole time. And incidentally, when you said, you know, she draws this line in the center, I'm thinking that itself is a form that happens again and again in this novel. Like to talk about the craft of it for a moment, we have these Two blocks with the corridor in between, yes. the shape of the novel. There's this one line, this short kind of passage in between. Then there's 
the line of the lighthouse yes. at the center of everything. And it doesn't really matter what the lighthouse means because it means something different to every character and probably something different to every reader. And that's great. There is no meaning of it, but it is a structuring symbol. You know, it is the line down the center of the picture. Hmm. And I think reading this again and reading it with you now, I'm struck yet again by just how rich the writing is in this novel, how everything is kind of almost fractaline or, or holographic. The The whole is in the parts and mm. the parts are in the whole. And there's these repeating structures and these patterns that ebb and flow and return and repeat. Yes. And how far... Lily Briscoe is from Mr. Ramsey, who harkens back for these heroic images of himself, and how far Wolf has come from her father, who edited these biographies of great men, the people who were the peaks of their historical moment, the ones whom you look back on as the solid points, at least at a, of a certain time. But instead, she's saying, whose life counts? Whose life counts for biography? And she kind of smashes that tradition and she still incorporates it. Mr. Ramsey still features, but not quite as large. Women are especially taken into view and yeah. and life itself becomes something viewed a little more diffusely. For this episode, we had the pleasure of interviewing Professor Dame Hermione Lee. She was the president of Wolfson College at Oxford University and is an emeritus professor of English literature at the Oxford English faculty. She is also a renowned author of the landmark biography on Virginia Woolf. Most recently, she published a new biography of Tom Stoppard, which everyone should read. Hermione, we are delighted to have you on Literate. And we wanted to start by just asking when you had first read the work of Wolf. I was a precocious reader. Uh, I had a very literary mother. I came out of a very literary household. And as a matter of fact, I vividly remember going away for the weekend to stay with some friends, which was rather an unusual thing, actually, for me to do. And by the bedside of my bed, the last person there had left the old penguin copy of the of the waves and I there was no other book to read and I was a child that needed a book to read all, <laughs> always so I picked up this book and I started to read the first page of the waves which are the voices of the children speaking you know I see a ring and I thought oh yes the, I know this language this this is my language and I read that first page and then it got more complicated. <laughs> and after about three pages, I stopped reading. I was about eight, seven oh. or eight. Um, oh. But it, it's very extraordinary because I do think, and So the Lighthouse, of course, is a book very much about children and how children never forget. I always think that's one of the key lines in the book, children never forget. And I do think there's something in her, although, of course, we think of her as a very sophisticated, complicated adult writer. She she appeals to something. There is something in her that speaks to a child's imagination, I think. And it certainly did to me. And I've been reading her ever since. Amazing. So 
jumping off that wonderfully kind of personal answer of your eight-year-old self discovering the words of Wolf, what does Wolf mean to you as a reader and, and as a writer, as her biographer? I think above all as her biographer, what I became entranced by and fixated by was an extraordinary courage. I think she's a very courageous writer and a very courageous person. There are all kinds of other attributes one could apply to her and people who don't like her, don't like her personality and don't like her work would think of many other adjectives. Although I think they'd all agree that there's a kind of audaciousness about her. But she she courageously dealt with some horrible uh, experiences in her life. She courageously set out to write a kind of fiction which she thought conditions required, modern conditions required. I think she felt that the life as we were leading it then in the 1900s and 1910s and 1920s required a different kind of writing that the old forms wouldn't do. Mm. And I think she's very courageous in the way she up to do that. She was thin-skinned. She was afraid of, of mockery. She was afraid of laughter. She was afraid of bad reviews, the way we all are. <laughs> and she protected herself somewhat by uh, the Hogarth Press, by her and her husband, Leonard Wolf, setting up the Hogarth Press so that she could write what she wanted to write and publish it and didn't have to be at the mercy of other publishers. So in that sense, she protected herself. But she was still putting her voice out there, both as a extremely experimental and adventurous writer and also as a feminist, though she would not herself have used that term. She was leery and anxious about that term. But I, yeah, so I think courage is the thing that speaks to me most vividly. I'm very impressed when I read the diaries and she's constantly urging herself along. Go on, she says, you know, get on with it. Don't be afraid, as it were, though she often is afraid. And there's this phrase she sometimes uses as if she's a, riding a horse. She says, take your fences, you know, jump over the next high fence and the next higher fence. And it's a bit like Mrs. Dalloway at the beginning of that novel. Well, she's not doing anything particularly brave. She's going out to buy some flowers for her party. But there's a sense that she's sort of plunging in. She's about to plunge into whatever the next experience is. And I find that extremely exciting. I'm also very interested in this curious doubleness that there is about her, where she seems to be both a late Victorian and a modernist who speaks to us. And because mm. her dates go between the 1880s and the 1940s, which is now increasingly a very long time ago, her childhood seems to be in another world, and much of the material she's writing about, including Into the Lighthouse, is 19th century material. But what she's doing with it is still, I think, quite radical and new. I think that's a great segue to the next question, what you're highlighting of her drawing on these older resources, but really courageously pressing to do something new with them. I learned from an old essay of yours that during the same year, as to the Lighthouse was published, Wolf raised the idea in a letter that her next book would revolutionize biography. And without going too deeply into the details of that next book, Orlando, could you tell our listeners a little about what Wolf meant by revolutionizing biography? Mm. And did this why did this matter to her? Can we see it playing out into the lighthouse? 
Yes, it's a very good question. And also the other book that she was thinking about as she was coming towards the end of To the Lighthouse was A Room of One's Own. And mm. people mm. tend to put, you know, the book you're referring to is Orlando. And people quite often, of course, match Orlando with A Room of One's Own because they are both books about the history of women writers and, and what the predicaments and challenges and constrictions are for women writers. I mean, Orlando is partly very much about that. It's kind of history of literature in a way as is A Room of One's Own. But I think To the Lighthouse and A Room of One's Own are less often put together, and yet a lot of the arguments into The Lighthouse that people are having with themselves and with others, you can clearly see are leading on to A Room of One's Own. However, that's not the question you asked me. The question you asked me is about a revolutionising biography, and the idea of revolutionising biography was to do with getting rid of gender conventions very much ahead of her time whereby she would have this character who would live for 300 years and would turn from um, being a man to being a woman, and thereby breaking down all the kind of strict determinist ideas that biography tends to have. You know, if you are this kind of a person, you are likely to behave in this kind of way. Uh, and also breaking down the time zones, which, <laughs> which normal biography usually inhabits. So she was very involved and engrossed with biography. Hmm. She was very critical of the normal traditions of biography. And there is a great overlap here between her essays and her fiction, because she's constantly asking questions about how we can know other people, how we can represent other people, uh, both in nonfiction and in fiction. And she's very impatient with and critical of the kind of career path which your standard biography usually has, especially if it's about a man. Hence her interest in revolutionising biography and writing about someone who broke down the fixed gender norms. And because she herself had not been to school, had not been to university, had not learnt Greek, as she is constantly complaining, had not had a public career, had not worked in an office, had not got titles after her name. She is extremely conscious of what would be the shape of a life that was not a public figure's life, that was a life of an ordinary woman who might be the mother of a lot of children, like Mrs. Ramsay, looking after her very demanding husband rather old-fashioned in her views, not terribly willing to take on board modern life. What would it be like to be a woman like Mrs. Dalloway, the wife of an MP, a Conservative MP, who seems to spend her life rather trivially, just sort of giving parties and not knowing much about anything? What is it like to be inside such a person? And all her books are about this. How do you find a language for writing what seems to her a truer kind of biography, a truer way of thinking about real people. There's a wonderful moment in To the Lighthouse where Mrs. Ramsay, who's a very active figure, she's constantly doing things, looking after the children, looking after her husband, making sure the boeuf en dobe is properly cooked for the dinner, going down to the village and looking after people, knitting a pair of stockings for the lighthouse keeper's boy who's got tuberculosis in his hip. When she's on her own, when she's not doing all this stuff, she sinks down into some realm of unknown, dark silence, which is rather gloomy and melancholy, actually. She's not an optimist. 
life seems to her terrible and all that activity kind of goes away and she becomes what the novel curiously calls a wedge-shaped core of darkness. So how can a wedge-shaped core of darkness be a description of a human being? Just as how can the painter Lily Briscoe's painting, which is a painting of Mrs. Ramsay with one of her children, appears on the canvas as a purple triangle. How could a purple triangle in modern art be a description or a view of a mother and child in the way that a Renaissance um, nativity scene could be a description of a woman and child? So this question about revolutionising biography is absolutely fundamental to the way she's also writing fiction. Wow, that's such a wonderfully kind of enlightening answer. Thank you so much, Hermione. I, I guess we're going to go out of the depths and, and come a little bit further to the surface to something a bit more superficial. Would, would you call this one of the books of the century, the 20th century, and of Wolf's body of work, if you were to pick one, is this the one that you would pick? Yes. Huh. Well, that's it then. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I, no, I, it's funny. I was just, when I start to try and read little bits of it again, if I'm going to talk about it, I find it extremely, I don't know about you, but I find it extremely hard to speed read for the lighthouse. I get completely sucked back in. And every single time, I mean, I know this book very well, and I've read it often. And every time I think, this is such an extraordinary book. This is so profoundly moving. And it's also very funny. And it's mm. also brilliant about society and families. And, and it's also very revealing and extraordinary about grief and loss and children's lives. And, and the other thing that happens to me when I look back at it, I always find something I haven't noticed before. It's very strange, as if it's been hiding it's secrets from me each time. And I will just tell you what I found this time. If you may I? Absolutely, please. So it's one of those passages where uh, Lily, the painter, the young painter, who's kind of in love with the whole Ramsey family and particularly with Mrs. Ramsey. And it's in the first bit of the book where they're all in this country house together, which is supposed to be in the Hebrides, but is actually evidently Cornwall, uh, which was where her family house was. And she's remembering her encounters with Mrs. Ramsey and, and she's... Yeah, you know, she's she's completely in love with her. At the same time, she can see the things that are wrong with Mrs. Ramsay. And she's remembering a scene where she put her head in Mrs. Ramsay's lap and looked up at her face and sees her face going rather still and stern, now with every trace of willfulness abolished, and in its stead, something clear as the space which the clouds at last uncover the little space of sky which sleeps beside the moon. The little space of sky which sleeps beside the moon. I've never read that sentence before. I've, I've never noticed it before. And it, it's just it's, it's an example of how extraordinary this book is, that she can do something like that in the middle of a quite realistic novel about a family on holiday and all the people who come to the house. And then the moment of the war and tragedy and loss and the ending of the life in the house and then picking it up again uh, sometime later with some of the people dead and some of the people coming back to the house. You could have told it as a perfectly ordinary late 19th century family saga and it would have worked really well, actually. I would have quite liked to read that book too. 
But no, it's not like that. It's got sentences like that in it where mm. you stop in your tracks mm. and think this is a kind of almost abstract poetry, yet it's very firmly embedded in the realities of the situation. And it's very precise and often very humorous, I think, about this family where you've got this second-rate philosopher who's constantly <laughs> complaining about the fact he's never made a big impact in his life. He's got this wife who is clearly comes from a sort of colonial, you know, her ancestors all governing India. She's supposed to have an Italian forebear. That was so that Virginia Woolf could get away from it being too autobiographically about her mother, who actually had French forebears. But then she forgets about that halfway through the novel <laughs> and has to inherit a French recipe for Berfondeau from her grandmother's I love that moment. Um, instead of an Italian dish, which is what it should be. And so there's her. She's got eight children. At some point, you get all the feelings about all the children. You've got these visitors to the house, um, Lily Briscoe, the painter. You've got the appalling Charles Tansley, who is a sort of pitiable figure and spends his time basically saying, I, 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 listen to me. I'm the man. Women can't write. Women can't paint. He's very like what goes on in A Room of One's Own. He's the sort of enemy in A Room of One's Own. Mm. You've got various surrounding characters. You've got a young couple who are falling in love in a rather ruthless sort of way, ignoring everybody else. So you've got all this plot going on, and you find out eventually what happens to all these people. But the simple plot is whether they're going to go to the lighthouse the next morning. And they don't, but they do get there in the end. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Hermione. Thank you. So, Erica, in your view, is To the Lighthouse one of the books of the century? Um, I'm going to have to go with yes. <laughs> Although I would say it's hard to choose for me between Wolf's novels, but I think To the Lighthouse probably is the one that hits the sweet spot between being experimental, feeling kind of emotionally resonant, and just being a really compelling read for me. Mm. Mm. I don't think it's necessarily accessible to everyone. Like it might be quite difficult to wade into for some people. And I can recognize that. But I just think that Wolf's voice is so particular, so incisive, and so satisfying to grapple with. And to enter into somehow that perspective of all these different perspectives, it's sophisticated and it's moving. And that to me is a, a really powerful combination. What about you? I agree. I would put this on my list of books of the century. I think of Mrs. Dalloway, for instance, as a more accessible text. So speaking to yeah. the concern you raise, it also engages a little more directly, I would say, with the Great War, and some mm -hmm. of the big themes of modernism. And that's not even touching on the essays. Three yeah. Guineas. A room, room of, of One's, one's own. own. I mean. Yes. Phenomenal. And then there are the diaries. And so. I love her short fiction too. Yeah. And Flush. We really need to be advocating this book about a dog. <laughs> but 
I think that To the Lighthouse has a richness once you plumb its depths <laughs> that is that is spectacular. It really yeah. is spectacular. And for that reason, I would put it above the others on my list in terms of uh, fictions. And I have enjoyed reading and rereading it, and I look forward to rereading it continually in the future because it is that kind of book. And the better reader I become, the more I see there. I also like about Wolf that she views the novel as an art form related to life, to talking about life, and not mm. in an easy utilitarian way. Yes. She engages with autobiography, but it's complex, and she's she has competing thoughts and feelings about that at different times. They, they change. And in all of that attention to the immediacy of life, she is utterly reflective about the way that history shapes any given moment and inflects those moments with meaning. And that informs the reason why I believe her depths in this book are worth taking the plunge into. We finally made it to the lighthouse, Alicia. Is it everything you imagined? <laughs> everything is illuminated. <laughs> <laughs> We'd like to thank Ermela Seshigiri and Hermione Lee for talking to us for this episode. Absolutely. And I'd like to give a special thanks to Erica Lombard, who not only created the original music for this episode, but music that was used in each of the episodes. Thanks, Alicia. It was actually really fun to do this. And we are incredibly grateful to you, our listeners, for your enthusiasm and your engagement. As we said at the start of the episode, the next season of Literate will be coming out in January. Keep an eye on our website and our social media for more information and for the exact date. Yes, between now and then, we'd love to continue hearing from you. Please get in touch with your thoughts on the book or this episode. You can read more about the podcast, including the sources we refer to, on literatepodcast.com. Or find us on Twitter at literatepodcast. Or email us at literatepodcast at gmail.com. And if you like this episode, please consider rating it, writing a review, and telling your friends about it. Mostly telling your friends about it. This massively helps. It totally does. We're building a community of enthusiastic and like-minded readers. And we're always looking for more people to join. And as always, please support your local library and independent bookshop. <laughs>